Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for, for taking the time out to come on. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk with you. <laughs> Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah. Um, so I grew up a couple places. When I was a little kid, I lived in Towson, Maryland, which is just outside of Baltimore. And then when I was in fifth grade, my family moved to Concord, New Hampshire. Um, and so what I ate, I feel like my early childhood food memories are really like stereotypical kind of white American mainstream food, right? Like my <laughs> strongest kind of early kid food memory was my mom making bags of frozen mixed vegetables and I hated the peas in it so much and I would like swallow them whole because I didn't want to taste the peas, right? Like that right. <laughs> stuff, right? Like baked chicken breasts and mac and cheese and mixed veggies. Um, and I think kind of that as I grew up, my family's food tastes and the foods that we would eat in the house really changed kind of along with what mainstream America was eating, right? So like by the time I was in middle school, maybe we would have avocados in the house or like in high school, we would have sriracha sauce in the house. Right. And so these things that became popular that kind of hit the mainstream would hit my house and my own palate at the same time, I think. Yeah. There's a book, great book about that called Eight Flavors. Uh -huh. I can't remember the subtitle, but it's about how things like sriracha specifically like enter the American consciousness, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is a very fascinating topic. Um, but how did you get into astrology? Yeah, um, I think I'm a little bit different from what I can tell than a lot of other like astrology people that I know. Right. I think for a lot of people, they encountered it when they were young or teenagers and something really clicked right away. For me, I like hated it when I was young. I felt so <laughs> kind of belittled and insulted by all the stuff that I would read about my sign. Um, right, like the Sagittarius stuff. It was kind of like, you're this cheerful jock, right? Which was so sick to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> Moody and really wanted to be like smart and intellectual and it just hurt my feelings a little bit. Right, and it also just seemed silly, the newspaper horoscopes you would read, like, I don't know, like, talk to your boss for that raise today. It's like, this means <laughs> nothing to me, this is fake. Um, and so then it was only, like, later on, I was in my early 20s living in New York, and I met all these kind of cool feminist punks who were into astrology and were conversant in it in really different ways than I had known were possible. And so that was kind of when... When I took it seriously, even as a thing that I might want to know anything about. Right. And well, why were you in New York, first of all? What, what made you move there? Yeah, I mean, really nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't want to live in New Hampshire anymore. Um, New York seemed cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what were the ways that they were into astrology that made it compelling to you? I think... Um, Part of it was just being from like a social universe that felt legible to me, right? Like all the horoscopes that you read in glossy magazines are imagining you, the reader, as this glossy magazine type of person. Or all the newspaper horoscopes are imagining you as this like professional class man, basically. <laughs> um, and so to see these astrological ideas kind of reflected in a way that I could see myself that changed things a lot. 
And also a lot of it was just, right, mainstream astrology, and this is changing some now, but it has traditionally been just extremely heteronormative, right? Um, all about like men in the sign are this way and women are that way. <laughs> and in a relationship, it's this way. And if you're a woman, here's what you want when you're getting married, right? Like all these things that just were like so icky and gross. And so to see it outside of any of those constructs really helped me, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> just think that way. No, I totally understand because like as a Scorpio, I think probably every Scorpio is really excited that they're a Scorpio. (laughs) (laughs) Like for their entire lives, they're like, absolutely. I am intellectual and mysterious and, you know, dark and brooding. Yeah. (laughs) Like absolutely correct. But then like to get my whole chart and then understand that like, you know, I contain many different things and like have to reckon with that. That was like, it's a good intellectual exercise to like not think of yourself in such a like singular way but yeah it does it it makes so much sense that it is a really interesting way like it it's embodied differently in feminist and queer spaces because it is a way of of understanding yourself as a plurality you know totally. yeah totally. um and you know the first page of your book notes that one of the possible uses of astrology which are vast and varied is is kind of predicting political unrest. And so was our current moment um, predictable in the stars or, or no? Honestly, it was. Okay. Like, 100%. <laughs> it was really funny. I don't know if you saw this. A few weeks ago, there was a piece in the New York Times that was like, will astrology be canceled since it failed to predict the pandemic? And <laughs> the astrologers got so angry because... For like literally years, everyone's been saying like 2020 is the year, upheavals, like change, transformation, 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's funny, right? So like the the simple answer is yes, 100%. Um, That's not really what I do, right? Right. (laughs) Like I'm less interested in kind of the societal applications of astrology. Personally, I think and this might get astrologers mad at me, I don't know. I think like a really good historian, right, is going to be able to predict things. Right. Honestly, as well as a good astrologer, right? It's like just different ways of looking at patterns to get to the same thing. Right. And you do have a very unique voice among astrologers. And I might be getting this wrong. Did you start writing your horoscopes for the rumpus or? I did, yeah. Yeah. And so has it always been more of kind of a literary form for you or it has honestly and when I started writing horoscopes it's funny I really kind of learned about astrology as I was writing I knew not very much at all and it was more of kind of the literary exercise of it Um, and over time right I've kind of grown more or more deeply interested in astrology itself Um, but it is a lot about kind of the mood and the voice and the feeling versus right like it's a good day to talk to your boss because it's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you you're based in Minneapolis now how how did you end up living there um i am or i'm technically right across the river in St. Paul okay. um which is like very important to people who are 
live here and are from here and to me it feels not very different at all um but mostly i just really wanted to live somewhere other than new york right this is very <laughs> sagittarius thing about me is that i love change and i love moving and so i left new york before i moved to new orleans um and then moved back to new york and then wanted to go somewhere else again um and I moved here specifically because my boyfriend was able to get his job transferred out here. So it was kind of an easy move to make. Right, right, um, right. And that was a few years ago. I really didn't like it very much at all at first and like it a lot more now. And weirdly, or not that weirdly, I don't know, right? All of the uprising has made me like it so much more here <laughs> than I thought I would. No, absolutely. I mean, who would have thought that Minneapolis would be the site, like the starting point of, of such an incredible, you know, worldwide protest? Um, I mean, I sure didn't, but that might be my New Yorker thing in me. <laughs> but, um, and so, yeah, how has it been to be there during that time? I've, I've, saw, I've seen on Twitter that you've been cooking at a mutual aid kitchen, um, and I know from doing some other interviews with folks based in Minneapolis, which again, I had no idea I'd end up talking to so many people in <laughs> Minneapolis um, in recent weeks, but it seems like very, very, you know, community oriented and driven, like w the work that's happening now and not just through mutual aid, but like in all ways. And um, yeah, like how, how has that emerged and how have you become part of that? Yeah. So, um, I've been involved through, um, it was a group that was organized through a part of the DSA here. Um, and this was work that they had started doing previously just to address kind of people's food needs because of the pandemic. And then really rapidly shifted to meet this kind of sudden emergency need that came up. Um, and so what happened, I got involved kind of right at the start, you know, protests had been going on for maybe one day maybe two days um and so we were like scrounging around trying to find kitchen space in the cities and so cooking in all these kind of bizarre like random churches using their wacky you know like serrated knives only and glass cutting boards <laughs> just horrible <laughs> equipment to try and cook these giant meals um and that was to Kind of feed people on the front lines and also to feed people in the neighborhoods in south minneapolis right by the precinct where their stores were either damaged or just closed down because you know they didn't want to get their windows broken or whatever i don't know um but in that neighborhood for a few days people really couldn't access groceries and so we were making meals for them um yeah and i feel like overall Right, it's funny, I've been out to protests only a little bit, and my experience kind of of the uprising has really been about this community work, um, the mutual aid stuff, and it's so, right, like it's so joyful, there's so much possibility, and I think it's really, it's really euphoric and really wistful at the same time, because, right, we all know, <laughs> or if you've done anything like this ever before, you know how hard it is to keep the energy going. Okay. Right. Um, there's this wonderful moment where everything breaks through and everything is possible. And then it's like, okay, but once the normal life pressures start to come back, 
how do we keep it going? Right. Um, and I think in the kitchen itself, so after the church spaces, eventually we found a professional catering kitchen that was closed because of the pandemic. And so they let us use their space. And that was really, right, really great to be cooking in this professional space without any of the <laughs> bad things about professional cooking. Right. Um, right. There's no bosses. There's no customers on the other side. Um, there's people eating the food, obviously, but there's nobody, right, like holding it over you that there's this paying person that needs to be treated a certain way. Um, and so that was really this magical kind of euphoria. Like, <laughs> why is it not like this all the time, right? Like, why is cooking, why is food not always like this? Because it could be. No, absolutely. And, and was this your first experience in a professional kitchen or no? No, it wasn't. So not, it's first for a long time. Um, but in my early 20s, I worked for a, um, what am I saying? A um, prepared foods kitchen for a fancy grocery store in Brooklyn. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was really funny in a lot of ways. It was kind of, all right, like not not totally restaurant style, right? But I don't know, it was a weird kitchen to work in. But it was really fun to be doing a lot of the same things, right? Like the same type of embodied labor, but only because everyone wanted to be there, right? There's no no bosses. That's what I keep coming back to. That right. was so great. Yeah, and and um, well, what influences your your politics in this way? You know, the doing mutual aid. You know, not hating bosses. <laughs> like, what? How did how did you come to your kind of political um, perspective? That's such a good question and such a hard one to answer at a certain point right, right? um so it's like i don't know this is <laughs> this is the world this is my life um i don't know if i have a good answer for you um no no well is there any reading that that especially was was influential for you maybe um let me think Right, I'm like so embarrassed. Let me look at my. <laughs> no, these are hard questions, and I know it's putting it puts you on the spot for this. But yeah. I'm always so curious about you know what what are the moments and the things that are are really you know to use a very old second wave term consciousness raising for really? for different people. You know, I mean, like I always go back to my like American feminist poetry class in college where, you know, we read this big anthology called No More Masks and we read Ansel Dua and we read um, Adrian Rich and we read all these, you know, feminist poets. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> but, you know, we all have our different moments. Totally. No, I think that's that's right. I do think for me, um, right, like similar, I think, to a lot of white women right? right like i came to it through feminism first um and then hopefully you broaden and deepen right. that right? so many people, so many people don't, don't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um a recent one that i was reading that was not so much foundational but has kind of clicked things into place right around a lot of this work um I was reading Sylvia Federici's book about the commons. What is it called? Um, Reenchanting the world. 
Right. And I really, I really like Sylvia Federici kind of <laughs> on the astrology side, because unlike a lot of Marxists, <laughs> she like believes in magic a little bit. Oh, good. Right. <laughs> like she's not dismissive of these kind of non material things that are still a part of our material lives. Mm -hmm. um, and then in this one specifically, it was kind of all about, right, this like worldwide erosion of the commons. Um, and then all these different little spaces that people are trying to rebuild them, right? And so this is a really nice example of what's been going on here and with the kitchen, um, and with so many of the projects happening, I know in Minneapolis and other cities too, right, is these ways that we're trying to rebuild commons for each other, whether that's about food or, um, right, housing, like the hotel that was here. Right. Did we talk about this? Um, they took over this former Sheraton hotel to house um, unhoused people who had been displaced by the police because of the riots. Um, and that's, I think, such a beautiful example to, like, <laughs> there's this huge hotel here. Let's use it for each other. Right. No, that's so important. And it, it, when that happened, it made me think of how many hotels here in Puerto Rico were probably vacant during the pandemic, yet the unhoused population was still unhoused and during this very dangerous time. And then because we've had a curfew ever since um, March 15th, you know, being policed as well in that time. And, and it's like, well, why wouldn't you create an initiative to put people in the hotels? And it's like, we know why, but like, <laughs> because, but at the same time, it's just, you know, why isn't this very obvious good pursued? I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's very crazy. But, and then there was another time during the earthquakes here at the end of last year, when so many people were sleeping in tents, like in their yards. And again, it's like, there's, there's hotels here, there's plenty of hotels. And, you know, it's just, I don't know, just never making, I don't know, that's why I, I think that was such an important um, moment of, of this time was, was the, the, that Sheridan kind of, um, I don't want to say takeover, but, you know, right. you know, use, proper use of, of that space, because, right. you know, like, feeding people, we have that language for it because we have soup kitchens i think you know so like mutual aid kitchens and community fridges and that sort of thing it's like okay like we understand this like we already do this in a charitable way that is like translatable into like the capitalist world so right. it's not as you know um difficult on people's minds but i i do think maybe the sheridan thing didn't get covered that extensively maybe outside of Minneapolis probably because it is so challenging to ideas that we never really conceive of right but. I do think you're so right about right like for some for whatever reason kind of because of that charitable model right people are really comfortable around food right, right. as the site of charity in the way that they're not comfortable with other things like I think a lot about um around here kind of in the immediate days after the precinct burned and all of that um right there were so many distribution sites set up to get food and stuff to people which is great and the need was there right unlike in a lot of disasters i think when there's stuff and that's not what people need but it was the stuff that people needed but it was i don't know something about like the the people who are willing to do that work versus like okay but let's 
get these people a house. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there is, there's a strange unwillingness to house people who need housing. Yeah. And it, it's, yeah, it's just, why isn't this need seen as the same as the need to eat food? I don't understand, but. Right. <laughs> um, and to get back to your, your book a little bit, but I, I was, of course, happy, you know, I've already gone over that I'm a Scorpio and all Scorpios are very pleased with themselves, but that, the, <laughs> the, the, you know, you cast the Scorpio as the punk and you use Kathleen Hanna as, as kind of the icon there. And you do include kind of a lot of counterculture figures in the book, as well as major pop culture figures. Um, how did you decide on the references? Was it kind of a conscious effort to balance the popularity of the iconic figures or you know what was the kind of framework you had in mind for how you um used people as characters to describe these signs yeah well first of all <laughs> thank you i feel like not a lot of people people talk about the book as like a pop culture book which it is right but it's not only a book about like celebrity celebrities well it's a it's cultural you know it's just cultural yeah. figures yeah <laughs> <laughs> um right and it was really this was something that i struggled with a lot as i was kind of putting together the proposal and the structure of the book because astrology only works in this sense um right if you have characters to talk about right it only works when it's connected to real people it gets really boring to me at least, when it's just these like lists of qualities, right? It's like, oh, Scorpio, like dark. Like, okay, but what <laughs> does that mean? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so where in real life, right? Like I can point to my mom as a character, right? Like, oh, you know, my mom, she's such a Pisces, but that doesn't work when you're writing this book for a general audience. And so the question becomes how to use kind of common touchstones and these common people in a way that's still interesting enough to me to write about it because a lot of these big celebrities right like like that's not interesting to me personally and I also think that at a certain <laughs> at a certain level of wealth right you're all a little bit more like each other than you're like right. anybody else um and so I think if anything, it was kind of the reverse where I had to work to get enough like actual celebrities in the book to balance it. So it wasn't just my own personal canon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, and so for you, is cooking a political act? Yes. I love this question because it's like so simple and so complicated right I feel like there's <laughs> things I have to define and explain to get to an answer um I think you know in the most basic level yes of course it is it's political kind of in the same way that literally anything any one of us <laughs> ever does is political um and obviously right cooking is part of a mutual aid effort. That's political in a different way. Mm -hmm. As far as my personal home cooking goes or cooking for other people, right? I think it's political, but it's not revolutionary. <laughs> and I think those are things, you've talked about this before, I think, right? But those are things that we like to conflate a little bit more than it's totally helpful, especially kind of broadly on the left, 
right? We want everything we do at all times to be radical. And there are things that are not radical that are still valuable and worth doing. And that's kind of where cooking falls for me. All right. Well, thank you so much, Claire. Yeah, thank you. This was great.